PowerPoint. The PowerPoint. Okay, um, I, I think in the interest of time, uh, we, s we can uh, start. Um, uh, let me welcome you to our event today uh, on the future of the EU budget, the MFF uh, post-2020. It's my real pleasure and honor to welcome Commissioner Oettinger um, uh, here at Bruegel today, who is um, uh, the responsible uh, commissioner for the EU budget and the MFF negotiation and has a very difficult task this year, namely to bring all of the various interests uh, uh, on this topic around the table and around a compromise that uh, hopefully will lead uh, then even still in 2018 to an agreement on the next, on the next MFF. Now, um, I will just give one, uh, one, one or two slides, two slides, in fact, to uh, give, you, uh, give you a sense. Can you get the next slide? S uh, get, get you a sense of what is my thinking on the issue. I think the first, the first point I, I would make, I think uh, I, I thought the commission document uh, two, from two weeks ago, the communi communication was actually a, a very strong document in the sense that it put all the things on the table. And I think it rightly emphasized um, the need to strengthen um, a number of public goods such as border control, immigration policy, defense cooperation, climate policy and research. And I thought it was actually very, very useful that you put up um, concrete numbers of options so that people um, that have to decide in the end on the EU budget can see, you know, what's on the table and, you know, what does it mean and what would it cost? So I think that was very clear and very important. Um, now, I think um, in, a, in an upcoming paper together with my colleague Scholl Davash, we review uh, the literature um, around um, various programs that, ex that do exist, and I, I think it, it's fair to say that there are at least some doubts on the effectiveness of some of the things we are doing in, in terms of agricultural policy, as well as some of the things we are doing on the cohesion policy. That doesn't mean that those things are not important, but I think there's scope for uh, increasing the effectiveness in these, in these areas and thereby uh, saving some money. Um, the third is, of course, this whole EU budget stabilization discussion, which I think um, uh, is, uh, it makes sense to have it as part of, of the EU budget debate. And certainly the one informs, you know, if we can show that we make so, uh, progress with the EU budget reform, we may be more easily able to convince stakeholders to put up money on the table for a stabilization function. Now, the last point I want to make is some calculations that uh, Jolt Davish and I did is on sort of the impact of Brexit on, on the whole, on the whole um, EU budget. And so, so basically what we did is we did this very simple calculation and said, okay, if there's no UK contribution to the next MFF and no EU spending in the, in the UK, while spending in the EU 27 and revenues um, from the EU 27 grow with the GNI, so stay basically equivalent, uh, then we would have a financing gap of 93 billion for the um, MFF period uh, 21 to 27. Now then you can think, you know, how do we fill it? One option is to increase the contributions in percent of GNI. One option is to, uh, to cut elsewhere. And so just to give you a sense of what are sort of margins of maneuver, if, if for example, we say cap and cohesion spending is fixed nominally, which is very tough because the GNI is increasing by 28%. Um, so the contributions would increase by 28%, but cap and cohesion nominally fixed. I mean, that's just a hypothetical model. It's up for policymakers to decide that. Um, then we would end up with a surplus of uh, 102 billion, which could be used for um, you know some of the new priorities um, that, that have been identified, such as border control, defense, and so on and so forth. Now then, the last point I want to make is, um, of course, the UK itself um, uh, will not disappear from the map. It will remain in Europe. Um, and if there is an exit agreement um, along the lines of what has been discussed so far, um, our calculations suggest that there will be around 20 billion um, uh, of existing obligations, UK obligations, that would go into the MFF 21 to 27. And of course, we can hypothesize, uh, hypothesize uh, on what kind of 
future contribution the UK may want to give to have some form of access to the EU market, which is certainly, I mean, totally up in the up in the stars at this stage. We don't know anything about this, but certainly there could be some some money coming. Uh, the question is how much and, and how much it will. we can count on it now. Probably in the 2018 negotiation, we have to take. Um, take the assumption that uh, the UK contribution will be very limited because we just don't know how the negotiations will end up. So these were sort of just some some numbers um, up front um, from a forthcoming paper that um, Jolt and I will probably publish um, in a week or two. We will present it also Friday at the conference uh, in Sofia where you, Commissioner Oetinger, will also be uh, present. And so I very much... Um, uh, would like to thank you again for coming here today uh, to Brügel to discuss these issues with us um, and uh, very much would like to uh, uh, look forward to your speech and uh, welcome uh, uh, welcome your remarks and your comments. So thank you again for joining us today and I look forward to your speech. Dear director, uh, dear colleagues on the podium, ladies and gentlemen, our main problem is that we need a next MFF by unanimity. Normally in, in a democracy, you need a majority in one parliament or in two chambers of a parliament. And for many of our member states, even a majority seems to be difficult. <coughs> we need 27 finance ministers, 27 ministers in the General Affairs Council, 27 heads of states uh, and government in reality, 27 governments, and 27 or more parliaments behind, plus the European Parliament. That's my starting point. And so I need all of us in a flexible mood. <laughs> or we will fail. We have uh, long-term traditional programs. Are they old-fashioned? We are checking this via spending review. And no doubt there are reasons to modernize, to simplify, to streamline. But is CAP uh, old-fashioned? I came back from Dublin yesterday. One concern, no cut in CAP. A real strong advice to me, no cut. Please fly to Dublin <laughs> or send your experts to Dublin. And let me say, what would, the, would this alternative to reduce or to renationalize? If we are in the first sector ever in Europe which was Europeanized, the agricultural sector, if we would renationalize would it be in the interest of taxpayers? Not really. But a region being more rich could invest a little more, others can't, and the single market is destroyed because it's no more a fair competition. We need a fair competition for a single market. <coughs> so better to have a European support scheme than to have 27 or hundreds in regions in parallel. It's about 56 billion, a lot of money. It's 30 cents per citizen per day. 30 cents. Cohesion. Take the GDP per capita in our EU, 27. The average is about 28,000 euro. My home country, Germany, 40,000. Luxembourg, 100,000. <coughs> Bulgaria, 6,800. We have to reduce this gap, this difference, or Europe can't survive. That's my conviction. Not by bringing Luxembourg down, but by bringing Bulgaria from 6,000 to 10, 12, 15, 20,000. As Latvia or Slovakia or others are doing. Maybe in 2050 we don't need any longer cohesion policy. Maybe. 
but seeing sees huge differences. I know. Next decade needs ongoing, efficient cohesion instruments. For to leverage Bulgaria, for to avoid that the, the southern part of Italy is coming down, reaching the average from the top, uh, and for to be more competitive all over our European Union. In parallel, we have new responsibilities, or new challenges, or new problems, or new options. Having played no role, or not such a role, in 2011, 12, 13, when we was developing the actual MFF. Take migration and the refugee crisis, or humanitarian aid via development aid funds for people in uh, Turkey, Jordan, Lebanon, Africa, for to avoid that they all are refugees of the next decade. Fight against terrorism, border protection and border control, defense research, and defense industries. Here, as you mentioned, we see clear added value. It's in the interest of our European taxpayers to work together to moderate the process and to have some European funding, some financial programs. Um, our treaty is clear. The European Union has no right uh, to finance by debt and deficit. There's one and only level. National levels have been making and are making debt and deficit, regional and local levels as well. Not the EU. So we have to close our gaps. A Brexit gap, which is after a transition phase about 12, 13 billion a year. And an expenditure gap, seeing these new responsibilities. Um, our proposal, having in mind unanimity, is to close the Brexit gap by 50-50. 50% cuts in our existing budgetary structure and 50% fresh money. Additional money coming from EU 27. New responsibilities if we are investing in the interest of our member states activating, realizing added value, solving problems in a more efficient manner. Here we need 80% fresh money, and we are offering 20% by cuts in our existing budgetary structure. We have been observing spending reviews for to see how to be more efficient how to avoid stranded investments, how to prioritize uh, important projects, and not just projects being nice to have, um, how to simplify our rules behind, without opening corruption our doors. Because some bureaucracy, some rules are necessary for to avoid uh, corruption against the European um, Union. We are thinking about to bring together several programs. Meanwhile, we have nearly 670 to reduce the number of programs, to be more flexible, to have a single rule book uh, behind. Uh, we are open to see what is this about grants, what is about loans, guarantees, and additional um, financial instruments. And there is room to maneuver, but it's limited. Because heading five alone is not enough. You need grants, you need cash. Or uh, Erasmus Plus guarantees are not um, functioning. You need money, you need cash. So we have to see which experience we made and make with the Juncker plan, 
and for to continue to prolong, but to optimize uh, as well. Um, last time, um, 2011-12-13, for to learn from the past, we made two mistakes. First one, ceiling. Uh, Prime Minister Cameron said, and it was his Bible, I think without reading our MFF, ceiling is 1.0%. And now we see it's a problem for our actual budgetary um, uh, policies. But with Brexit and new responsibilities, 1.0 would be the square of the circle. We are doing our best, but this is not our um, real conviction. So we have to convince member states, Austria, sorry, I feel in Austria, the Minister for Agricultural Affairs said, no cut in cup. Landeshauptleute, the regional prime ministers, all of them are saying to me, no cut in cohesion. More money for pre-accession of West Balkan. No cut in horizon, coming from Siemens Austria. Mission impossible. And then saying to me, heading five can bring the money. Ridiculous, ridiculous. I'm really a little bit angry. And I'm, I'm too old for to accept these games. I'm willing to fight. Because it's not the Commission's MFF. It's the MFF in the interest of 440 million citizens, even more seeing neighbor states and refugees. It's the MFF of our researchers, of our kids, of our future, of our member states. And so we need a ceiling which is about 1.1x. And x is the open question for the moment being answered 2nd of May. And the second mistake was Barroso 2 came out in June 2011. Nothing happened afterwards. Maybe think tanks. Thank you. Round tables. Discussions in the parliament. Up and down, blah, blah, blah. Nothing happened. Is there any reason why I have to come out now? The one and only reason can be to start negotiations and to be ready before Christmas 2020. We have been ready last time, Christmas 2013. And afterwards, implementation to declare which administration is responsible, to come to shared management and agreements, to roll out the programs, to inform the farmers, the researchers, the regions, the mayor, 2014 and the first semester 2015 have been totally lost years. To learn from the past, to avoid mistakes, not to double mistakes, would mean to use the window between May 18 up to March 19 and to prepare the start in May from now on up to May. And here, it's a question of good governance. We could fill the Bratislava and Rome process. We could demonstrate Europe has a future, is united, if we come to a decision before we have the next election. If not, the winner is Ankara, Moscow, DC. The winner are autocrats treating Europe is not really uh, able to solve their uh, problems. I am willing to do my best for to present a balanced proposal and my expectation to all of us to support us to come to a decision before the campaign and the next European election. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for these very, very clear, clear and inspiring words. Um, 
So I take away uh, definitely your determination to fight and to make sure that we f we we can agree on a, on an MFF, and that the MFF um, uh, at least partially can uh, make up for the loss of Brexit through an increase of the contributions, uh, one 1.1 x uh, percent of of GNI, if I understand correctly. So so that would be uh, would be uh, uh, an interesting uh, interesting increase in the in the budget that I think. Uh, um, will not uh, immediately universally be accepted across Europe. So, so that will be an interesting fight to watch. But now uh, I'm very, very happy to um, uh, welcome three, uh, very, uh, three very distinguished um, uh, panelists um, that will uh, share their thoughts with us. Roger Havenet is the Deputy Chief Executive of the European Investment Fund. Charlotte Ruhr is the Managing Director um, at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. And last but not least, Margit Schratzenstaller-Alzinger is the Deputy Director at the WIFO Institute in, um, in Vienna. And I guess we'll have to respond to um, uh, being held responsible for the, for the uh, position of the Austrian government. So... <laughs> Of course, he is here as an academic. Uh, I'm joking. So, 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 so Roger, per perhaps you kick it off. No more than four or five minutes. Yeah. Great pleasure. I think uh, in media race, I, I would like to comment a bit on, on some of the challenges that some of them are clearly of a political nature. And yes, the European Investment Fund are more on the implementation and design side and not in the policy. So, on the resources, I, I see clearly the, the the issue of squaring the circle. I mean, to do more and more. Uh, and, and including new challenges and preserving traditional uh, policy priorities, but not necessarily with more money. <coughs> and um, therefore the question is, what can we do? Now let me take exactly the, the point of agriculture in Ireland, because I think it's a very interesting starting point. Uh, we were contacted um, a few months ago by your colleague, Mr. Hogan, and he said, can, can we do things maybe a bit different? Um, and of course, preserve the, the large part of grants, but see whether there's potential to do some financial instruments. And the idea was clearly not to replace all the grants and to do everything with financial instruments. And we were talking uh, to Ireland at that moment, and they had some spare money. We had some money from uh, your programs and decided first to join forces. So the first lesson from this, you can do more with if you work together. Second point is they were in the process of uh, setting up a national promotional institution and we have been uh, working very closely with them in setting it up. And I must say, it has been a very big success story because now uh, we see a big, big demand, more than we had ever expected. I have been asked three times now to top up, basically, the resources to do not what is still being done with grant money, but to do a part of it with financial instruments. And I think we see here a bit the ingredients of what you referred to. We, we need certainly to do some further homework and, and see how we can systematize this. But we are using local expertise here, financial institutions, uh, but also national promotional institutions and um, the EIF, you're part of the EIB group, uh, in order to, to look not only at one country, but a number of countries. And I see big potential in this. Currently, if you look at the structural funds, which are the biggest pot, uh, of, of uh, possible resources for financial instruments and grants. Um, and I'm talking about the ASIP, so agriculture, cohesion funds, but also ESF and, and maritime and fisheries. So in the cohesion um, area, there is some, some um, experience which has been built up over time. The current is around 20 billion, which are earmarked for financial instruments. It's a big absolute number, but small in terms of percentages. I see certainly more potential to build on our experience there. But in some areas, like agriculture ESF, it's 0, 0.000 somewhere. And I mean, if you were to make this tomorrow 2%, we could certainly do more with less for traditional policies. So I'm not dreaming. Second point, um, I think that uh, we need to distinguish a bit between structural funds, ESIF, which have certain objectives, and where I see a big potential to work with the local partners and to do things even more. Currently, we, we, we work with them, um, but uh, I believe in the future, I see many ways where we can build on our experience, uh, coming from central instruments to co-invest, to share risk, to have the NPDs take the lead in some cases, in some cases it's maybe the EIB or EBRD or others to work. However, if it comes to centrally managed instruments, we're talking about limited resources and which should, in my view, have a clear EU added value. It's not to do more of the same. It's to do things which can, you cannot do through national level 
and it should follow, therefore, the principle of subsidiarity. And again, I mean, the message of hope, uh, coming back to your question on the Juncker plan, is yes, we can do things better. And if I look at the part we are responsible for managing within the group, the EIF, we have done 50% of the implementation of the Juncker plan, working together with national promotion institutions. And I think that's certainly a way forward. Does it mean that you need to have 39 contracts in tomorrow to have each of them do their own uh, uh, um, reporting and, and assurance building? Not necessarily. Let's reflect on the best way. But I certainly need, uh, well, I see a potential to do some streamlining. And I was very happy to hear that um, you, you um, refer to it both in terms of rules, single investment funds, single rule set. I think that's where we really need to work in order to bring together the various uh, resources we have and the actors we have. Currently, they are facing some challenges. So over lunch, we have 900 different financial instruments in the area of structural funds. My dream is tomorrow to have 10, because there are not 900 ways to do portfolio guarantees. There are not 900 ways to do loans. There are not 900 ways to do equity. But you need to create a conducive framework which is fit for the purpose and acceptable to the parties. I think we need also to do some homework on, on the impacts, because we need to see what we do tangibly to make life better for the citizens. And this is not just about volumes. It's about saying what concrete impact we have achieved. And therefore, it's a, it's a cultural change for which we need a lot of data, which we need to analyze, to look at, to evaluate, to be open about it, communicate. But Certainly, we, we, we need also to communicate in the right way. We have recently, at the request of the Commission, looked at what the EU has achieved in the area of SMEs. And there are 22, 23 million of them. Well, the EU, just looking at what the EF has done, has supported more than a million. And you can see where they are nowadays. On a map, which is public, you can click and you want to know what is in your, your, your country, in your area, what is in your, your, your street. You see who has, where tangibly the EU has made a difference. This is the type of things we need to have in the future, to show where the EU makes a difference when we work together. I'll stop here. Thank you. Um, yes, Charlotte. Thank you very much. The MFF is a key subject for EBRD, and I'm delighted to be here this afternoon to speak with you all. For those of us who don't know the bank so well, we are a majority EU-owned financial institution in which the European Commission and the EIB are shareholders. And we are investing around 10 billion euros a year in Europe and it's near abroad, with particular areas of strength such as climate finance, municipal infrastructure, privatization, and capital markets development. We work extensively with the EU as our policy partner, our shareholder, and a key provider of financial resources which we use to blend with our investments. We all went to see a post-2020 budget, which is more efficient and effective in terms of promoting a European brand of competitiveness, innovative, green, inclusive, and integrated, and an effective tool to mobilize productive and sustainable investment within and outside the EU. Commissioner, you've mentioned a more efficient approach and combining grants and loans for investment. And we see the opportunity to use grants in a smarter way so that the grants are brought in only where there's a real constraint that makes them necessary and instead using a financial instrument as a substitute for a grant where it isn't necessary. This way, the money can be leveraged much further and make the need for expanding the budget perhaps smaller. Um, if we can get the grants right and promote the financial instruments, we would also then like to use this as a means to bring in the private sector. But bringing in the private sector really means looking at market-based pricing for some of these instruments. Because a, a private sector financial institution is not in a position, or a, financial, or a financial investor is not in a position to take a loss on an investment to, to subsidize it. So, so we have to address that. I think it's also important to combine investment with policy reform and to do this in a really coordinated way, as we do with the Commission in many of our countries where we're making investments, for example, for the state sector. 
And in that respect, um, we think that the policy conditionality implementation can be enhanced post-2020 to achieve structural reform. Um, finally, we would encourage an open architecture. Different organizations have different strengths. At different times, each of us has more or less financial and technical capacity to get the most out of each of us and to maximize our combined impact in using EU taxpayers' money. It's vital that a future MFF with a bigger focus on financial instruments and leverage should be open to us all. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Uh, last but not least, uh, Margit, I think we now need the academic uh, to help us sort all of this out. Thanks for the academics. Thanks also for the opportunity to make a few remarks on, on this inspiring um, uh, keynote by Commissioner Oettinger and also uh, on the paper we issued uh, just a few uh, weeks ago. Uh, by the way, uh, originally I'm a German, not an Austrian. Um, I'm particularly happy to, to do this, to make these uh, remarks at, spe at this specific point in time, two months before the launch of the Commission's um, proposal for the next MMF. Um, as probably everyone here on the panel, I'm not that much uh, happy, however, about the direction of the, of the current uh, public debate um, and, and political uh, debate in my perception. The good old or rather the bad old net position uh, thinking has been re-emerging in the last few months, not only in Austria, also in Austria, uh, since the start of a serious EU budget um, uh, debate nonetheless. And here I totally agree with Commissioner Oettinger. This time is a bit different um, from the uh, previous EU budget negotiations. There are a number of, you call them challenges, problems. I would mention, I, I would call them opportunities uh, for a more future-oriented post-2020 EU budget, which is able to contribute more to European um, added value. And these are arising, of course, from various current and long-term challenges. The first one is the Brexit shock, which was mentioned uh, already, uh, with which we see a rather strong uh, proponent of the net position uh, thinking leave uh, the EU and which offers a chance to do away with all the rebates um, granted not only to the UK but also to, to various other member states. Uh, Austria uh, is one uh, of them. The Brexit also means that one of the fiercest opponents um, of any form of tax coordination and tax uh, harmonization is leaving um, the EU. Um, the second opportunity is the migration uh, and refugee shock uh, making the member states and the EU uh, aware that we are not living on an island uh, but need a proactive external uh, policy in various dimensions. So thirdly, there are the international climate agreements and further commitments and international initiatives, the, social, uh, the, the sustainable development goal, the international efforts to effectively ta uh, tax multinational enterprises, uh, Paris, um, etc. And not least, um, you mentioned that before the current reflections on the flaws in EU and EMU uh, architecture and future integration scenarios as laid out by the Commission some months ago create a certain momentum to push deeper reforms uh, in the EU budget. The crucial question, however, is how to make a fundamental reform uh, of the structures of the EU budget happen, yeah, considering that we need unanimous decisions on all uh, budget uh, questions, all tax questions. Also, I think it's obvious that European added value should be the overarching criterion uh, guiding the design of EU expenditures and revenues. And this refers to both sides uh, of the EU budget, to the expenditure side as well as to the revenue side. On the one hand, I think that a part of current owned resources should be replaced by sustainability-oriented tax-based owned resources by introducing such taxes that cannot be introduced uh, and levied effectively uh, at member states uh, level due to tax competition, due to tax um, avoidance, due to uh, cross-border externalities, example, uh, the famous financial transaction tax, but also taxes on, on um, cross-border air traffic, um, a share of the CCTB, uh, etc. Um, and these tax-based own resources should um, be embedded in the broader context, and this is an important overall perspective, in the broader context of improving the structures of EU member states' tax systems or reductions of member states' contribution to the EU budget, create space for the reduction of less 
growth and employment friendly taxes and particularly the high tax burden on labor in member states. On the other hand, we need a radical restructuring of expenditures and here of course agricultural and cohesion funds are the central levers here. Yeah? They make up for almost three-fourths of the total expenditures. So these have to be in the center of any deliberations for restructuring the budget. This would entail a reduction of the overall expenditures on CAP, reinforcing the greening of the first pillar shift to the second pillar. This would entail um, shifting the cohesion funds from richer to poorer member states, uh, specifically focusing them on the poorer regions um, in the EU, but also coupling them more strongly with employment, with climate goals, as well as a proactive migration and integration uh, policy. This would entail, uh, you mentioned that before, uh, a higher share uh, of expenditures for research and innovation, in particular for green uh, research, but also more expenditures on climate-friendly cross-border infrastructures, uh, trans-European networks, uh, as part of a European decarbonization strategy, and last not least, more expenditure on development assistance should be increased significantly. And finally, um, um, I think that we need a comprehensive perspective, and this is a crucial success factor in various respects. Uh, the budget debates needs to be closely linked to other initiatives and moves at the EU level, uh, the fight against tax avoidance, uh, corporate tax harmonization, fair taxation of the digital economy, the efforts to stabilize financial markets, sustainable development goals in general and climate goals in particular. There are a lot of important initiatives that could be supported by the EU budget. The second success factor, instead of discussing individual expenditure <coughs> items separately and instead of discussing the expenditure and the revenue side separately, expenditures and revenues needs to be, need to be regarded in an integrated perspective. And thirdly and last we need package deals uh, instead of discussing individual budget uh, items and I think package deals are probably the only possibility how to get all member states with their diverging interests uh, on board. Thank you. Thank you very much, Margaret, for these um, inspiring words and uh, also for uh, putting the finger which we haven't, had yet, uh, haven't yet done on the, on the revenue side, which uh, is often neglected. But of course, there is the question, will the EU uh, finally move uh, to a new system where at least some resources um, uh, are levered through, uh, let's say, a, a tax on carbon or CO2 emissions or, or something like this, which would be possible, by the way, in the EU treaties. Um, you only need uh, a unanimous decision uh, uh, to uh, to do that, mm -hmm. uh, but once you have taken that decision, you can actually uh, have exactly. a, have a have a tax um, on on CO two um, as an environment tax uh, that's allowed by the mm -hmm. EU treaties. So so that would be one avenue just that one one could follow. Um, also important the package deal, and of course you mentioned as I did um, the importance of reviewing uh, CAP and and cohesion. I think on the CAP, what is quite quite striking is that. Even the European Court of Auditors has been very, very skeptical on what um, uh, the EU uh, CAP has achieved on greening, namely uh, it has been unsuccessful. So it seems to be uh, uh, certainly an area that needs to be revisited where perhaps more can be achieved with, with less money. Um, let me um, perhaps get two or three comments, uh, questions from the audience and then uh, give the floor to you, please. And please also identify yourself. Well, thank you. Lars Holgaard, formerly with the Commission. Thank you, Commissioner Oettinger, for a very clear and, and inspiring speech. Uh, in DJ Agri, I was in charge of the first pillar, that is the 40 billion euros, in terms of direct payments every year. So I know a little bit about this subject. The Commission, however, has not really been very bold in terms of the future regarding the CAP. In its communication that came out recently, it basically says, we will continue with the direct payments as they are today. And you have said also that, of course, there are different member states who are very dear to the direct payments and the money that they receive. The direct payments, however, were uh, really only justified at the point of departure 
as a compensation for the price cut. And they retain a very important function in terms of the income for farmers. They represent something like 40 to 50% of the income of farmers. But it cannot be a social policy for the CAD. If you want to have a social policy, it should be financed over the social fund. You cannot justify in length that income support for one sector and not for others. There's no real public good as such coming from the direct payments. Mm -hmm. So I ask the question, why hasn't the commission, as it was alluding to, introduced the element of co-financing in the direct payments, which would make member states more responsible? For we know from the pillar two, rural development policy, that member states are much more responsible and ready to control the expenditure because they co-finance. So that's one idea in terms of savings. Another idea in terms of savings would be to phase out the direct payments over perhaps 10 years by way of a bond. The farmer could retain the bond or could keep it until it runs out. It would allow the young generation to take over the farm because direct payments today are capitalized into the land values, which makes it much more difficult for young farmers to take over mm -hmm. from an old farmer. So it would combine two effects. Some of the money which is saved and could be used for the other purposes that you have correctly described, some of that money should, however, remain in agriculture to reinforce the public good, good aspect. And there are many public good aspects which are not remunerated by the market, which is not paid to the farmer. And that is protection of the environment, climate change, biodiversity. There are a number of areas which could be justified the use of taxpayers' money for agriculture. But in the long run, it is not justified to continue with direct payments, which is simply a social policy. Thank you. Thank you. Um, let me take two, two more questions. So I have one here in the front. And is there a journalist or yeah, one lady in the back? Is it working? Yes. Hello. Yes. My, my name is Valentin Begert. I'm uh, the budget attaché of the Austrian uh, government, if you will. So I <laughs> feel a bit obliged to answer Mr. <laughs> maybe to Mr. Oettinger's comments. And uh, also welcome to Frau Schratzenstaller. Um, uh, talking about the Austrian position or positions of other countries in this regard, there's this famous 1% figure that is being heavily criticized, and I also understand Mr. Oettinger referred to it as squaring the circle. Now, um, what we noticed when we looked into this, and I think we should always not only look at the percentages here, but also on the cash, on the euros behind it, we're going to face, hopefully, a decade of, of, of good economic growth. So this means the GNI is actually evolving upwards, which means that the money available, at least according to our prognosis when we do our own calculations, we would see that 1% of the EU27 GNI, which is the position of at least four member states, as I understand, that would actually mean a bigger MFF compared to the recent one, which is an MFF for 28 member states. And according to our projections, this would even mean some 60 billion more euros to be spent excluding the roughly 50 billion that are now reserved to the UK. So if you add that up, you're actually arriving at a figure, I think that Mr. Wolf, you mentioned in your paper, around 110 billion euros of extra expenditure that would be possible in a 1% scenario. And Mr. Oettinger, my question would be, you mentioned in previous speeches that you plan for a certain amount of fresh money for new priorities. And I think at some point you mentioned 10 billion, million, 10 billion um, euros a year, which would roughly be 70 billion over a seven years period. So my question would be, wouldn't that fit together? On the one hand, a 1% scenario, and on the other hand, your scenario of having fresh money for new priorities, while on the other hand, you could sort of accommodate the needs or the demands of certain member states who ask for a moderate budget when we express it in GNI. Thank you. Okay, we have uh, a lady here. Um, and then I think I have to close the... Yes, Commissioner, you mentioned the importance of... Uh, could you of, please uh, identify yourself? Yeah, my name is Valérie Rampi, and I'm working for the European Chemical Industry Council. 
Um, my question relates to the work plan. You said that you wanted to, uh, to work swiftly on the MFF so that uh, the programs can enter into force uh, on time, not to repeat the delays that had occurred on the current MFF. The EU leaders met in February, but they did not communicate on how they intend to work further on the file throughout the next month. Next week, the Parliament will adopt its negotiating mandate, uh, and they have already indicated they would, they would like to have a fast-track procedure and start right away discussing with the Commission and with the Council. So could you please maybe give us more information on how the working plan will look like in the next months to come? Thank you. Thank you. The working plan is quite clear. We are coming out 2nd of May. And we need these next eight weeks. I have to travel to additional eight member states. I have to see the reports coming from the parliament for to use their advice in the best manner. We um, have to finish our spending reviews. Uh, we have to uh, see uh, what does it mean, a single rule book. Um, this afternoon we have a meeting speaking about external affairs and funds for Africa, Middle East, refugees, uh, neighborhood policy, and so on. So we need some more time. And our reflection paper process is ongoing as well. Day by day, we get reactions. Or here, I'm a learning system, sitting and hearing and being in a listening mood. So 2nd of May is our date, uh, which um, will be the college meeting and the decision for our next MFF. And to prepare the 2nd of May means to announce rapporteurs in several committees in the parliament, or uh, means uh, to uh, discuss reports in the parliament, to be in the committee of regions. Um, next week, 16 German um, prime ministers are coming uh, to Brussels just for the speaker about the MFF. So maybe just Easter is free. Before and afterwards, we are working quite hard. <laughs> and if your associations would like to meet me, I'm available. Because I think an industrial pillar <coughs> on the horizon would be important. Here, your lobbying could be quite relevant. Um, CAP and social. It's social plus, it's much more. A social fund brings some hundreds money to a poor citizen, mainly without obligations. Our money, direct payments to farmers, are combined with huge obligations. Maybe greening was not perfect. This was not my idea. It was decided by parliament and council coming from DG Agri, uh, by the way. So, greetings to my colleagues. Uh, uh, I have left by that. <laughs> <laughs> Happy man. <laughs> but the, the main thing is, our farmers are obliged seeing water, groundwater, seeing to produce, uh, not intensive, but extensive, to reduce uh, the amount of food, the amount of wine, and so uh, on. And if there are obligations, and we want that our farmers can survive in a global competition with US, Canada, South Africa, maybe uh, Ukraine, uh, then many of our farmers are not able to survive. And having partially in some member states perfect labor markets. Me coming from the Stuttgart region, for a young farmer without payments, never ever it will be attractive to uh, be a young farmer, to take over the farm. Uh, Daimler, SAP, or even the regional government are paying much better. And there is no Sunday. Sunday, there is no Saturday. Uh, they have to work. So I think 
please don't forget if our mid-sized, family-owned farms want to survive, they need funding. And now, co-financing, does it make sense? No, it makes no sense. From a taxpayer's point of view, taxpayers are paying taxes to a region or member state. And from there, it comes partially to Brussels. What doesn't come to Brussels, but has to be co-financed by member states, there's no difference from a taxpayer's point of view. But it would be much more bureaucratic. In addition, um, a region as Bavaria could pay much more than Bulgaria could pay in a com common market. This is an unfair competition. This would be a clear case for DG competition. So additional bureaucracy. So I think this old but not old-fashioned program is not so completely stupid. We have to modernize it, to optimize it, to do our best, but it should be an evolution, another revolution. You are right, 1% is a um, revenue which is growing. But let me say, these 49% of our taxes going to member states are growing as well. So the same violence I can present to Vienna, to Salzburg, to Linz, to Berlin, to Stuttgart. I think let's be fair. Uh, vice versa, same argument against you. Yeah, you know best. And let me say, um, I would like to increase Erasmus+. Plus. Maybe double or even triple. I would like to do so. I would like to double Horizon 2020. Uh, we have a clear European goal since years. 3% uh, of our European GDP should be invested in R&D. The more we speak about, the less we reach it. We are less than 2%. Coming from Baden-Württemberg, I'm proud just for this, nothing else, 4.9. Germany, meanwhile, 3%. Italy, I love Italy, 1%. This is a clear demonstration who has future and who has to do better. So 3% would mean in the EU28, we have a GDP of 15,000 billion, would mean 450. We are investing 300. There's a gap of 150. Horizon, in total, has 11 or 12. Shouldn't we double Horizon? Best reasons. In the interest for, of Austrian SMEs, of Austrian global player, and so on. We are fighting, be sure. And we have best arguments, even for countries as Netherlands and Austria. <laughs> Okay, thank you very much. Please all join me in thanking the Commissioner for his very clear and generous time of work. Thank you very much for a good discussion.